let me go ahead and introduce our, our next speaker. Um, it, she is standing right here. Uh, it's Nina Ves uh, Lager-Vesberg, who is Professor of Visual Culture in the Department of Art and Media Studies, thank you, um, at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. But her training was actually here in, India, um, in England at the uh, University of Westminster, where she studied photography and multimedia. She then completed her master's and doctoral degrees in art history at Birkbeck College. She sits on the board of one of the major journals in the field, History of Photography, edited, of course, by Luke, who's sitting over there. And she has published widely on topics such as the environmental aspects of various media technologies and the use and impact of digitization in museums. She recently co-edited a volume for Routledge titled Media and the Ecological Crisis and published an article on materialist ecologies and the post-photographic. The title of her talk today is The Place of Photography and the Phases of Digitization. Thank you, Nina. Thank you. Um, thank you for that introduction and thank you again uh, for having me um, and thank you all for staying the course so far. <laughs> You're doing really well, not that long to go now. Um, Right. Um, in my proposal for this conference, I promised to plot the place of photography against a set of cultural, social, technological and economic coordinates by charting the digital condition of photography through a minimal phase model of digitization. And this would demonstrate how a theoretical framework inspired by Roland Robertson's minimal phase model of globalization can be helpful in accounting for how photographic practices in general, and photographic archives in particular, are affected by the emergence and consolidation of digitization as a cultural form, um, to distinguish it from a technological process. Um, and of course, as I submitted this tall order, I had clearly not got the message that I was only allowed 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> And uh, still less was I prepared for the news that the performance would itself be recorded and archived for dissemination, and I quote, um, throughout the world, in whole or in part, by any means now known or hereafter developed, <laughs> as Apple subsidiary iTunes U so menacingly puts it in the small print of the podcasting consent form. Um, now, having undergone something of a reality check then, I decided to reformulate my objective very slightly in the following terms. Instead of discussing how photography and its archives have been affected by digitization, I will focus on how digitization has been affected by photography and its archives. First off, however, for those of you who may not have spent much time recently revising early 1990s globalization theory, I'll give a very schematic overview of different phases of globalization as they've been identified by Robertson and indicate how photographic practices and technologies fit in with these two. And in that sense, uh, Shimon just gave a very good, uh, sort of set me up very nicely um, with his presentation. Um, so in his 1992 book, uh, Globalization, Social Theory and Global Culture, Robertson identified five phases of globalization going from the 15th century to the 1990s. Um, the germinal, the incipient, the takeoff, the struggle for hegemony, and the uncertainty phase. Um, to these, it was subsequently added a sixth phase um, in publications that came out in 2007 and 2009 um, to account for the state of the world post 9-11. But I'll focus on the original five um, here because I won't have time to go into the, to the sixth phase. Um, in the first germinal phase, uh, running from the mid-15th to the mid-18th century, 
It would, of course, be hard to demonstrate a specific role for photography, as yet not invented as such. Um, however, it is safe to say that colonial expansion, scientific experiments, and technological innovation during these centuries all contributed to the building up of what Geoffrey Batchen has memorably called the desire to photograph. During the next incipient phase, from around the time of the great 18th century revolutions up until the 1870s, this desire culminated in the successful development and patenting of photographic technologies proper. And soon after 1839, these technologies were disseminated through existing global networks and put to work with, for a wide range of activities, from scientific documentation to surveillance via portraiture and war reporting. And the specimen I've included here is a stereographic uh, photograph documenting the construction of the uh, Union Pacific Railroad, which of course is a key piece of nation-building infrastructure in the US. Well, documenting and advertising probably um, is uh, the correct description. By the takeoff phase of globalization, uh, roughly from the 1870s to around 1925, photography had practically been weaponized. There would barely be any point in organizing competitive international events like the Universal Exhibitions or the Olympic Games without photography there to document and advertise their magnificence. While the invention of tradition would surely have been much slower without the camera to help record and disseminate traditional costumes and rituals. <coughs> And this is, of course, not to mention the tireless work of photography in the service of othering, um, based, for example, on visual facial characteristics during this period, um, which we saw striking examples of um, yesterday. During the struggle for hegemony phase, from the mid-1920s to the late 1960s, all kinds of photographic technologies were obviously put to significant use for both military and civilian purposes during the Second World War, um, and in the early stages of the Cold War, uh, photographic images were also deployed in appeal to, and I stress, seemingly depoliticized idea of global humankind, epitomized in the family of man exhibition. <laughs> um, and at the end of this phase, uh, Hasselblad, loaded with ectochrome, was right there with the crew of the Apollo 8 orbiting the moon in December 1968 and producing the ultimate visualization of a globalized awareness in the form of this Earthrise image that I'm sure you all know. Um, in the uncertainty phase, uh, photography has become so ubiquitous, it's, it's not even worth starting uh, to enumerate its functions. However, I do want to highlight one specific area of a business where photography and globalisation go particularly hand in hand, and that is in the global market of stock photography which was described in 1994 by the designer J. Abbott Miller as a corporate vernacular, symptomatic of the transformation of our roles from citizens into consumers. And of course, this is the moment when photography itself is increasingly felt to have an uncertain future uh, faced with the rapidly emerging <coughs> phenomenon of digitization. Uh, which takes me to the main topic of my talk, which is how to determine the place, uh, photogra uh, place of photography within what I call the minimal phase model of digitization. Um, and I want to underscore again that when I speak of digitization, um, I'm not referring to the process of, of scanning prints or inputting metadata according to Dublin Core standards, uh, but to a cultural form, a term that I borrowed from Raymond Williams, as a way of differentiating between digitization as a set of technological capabilities and digitization as a set of cultural practices, um, for want of a better term. These practices are, as I'm sure I don't need to point out, closely intertwined um, with the aforementioned technological parameters. Um, 
Now, what I term the germinal phase of digitization, in fact, lasted through the first four phases of globalization. Uh, and the year 1970 here is to be taken with a pinch of salt. Um, it can be rounded down or up uh, to include the establishment of ARPANET, the sort of proto-internet, in 1969, um, and the launch of the Polaroid SX-70 camera in 1972. The folding of Life magazine as a weekly edition in that same year could be cited as another sign that print media were facing a challenge from screen media, even if these were not, by a long way yet, digital media. But what has photography done to ready itself for the soon-to-be incipient new technologies? For one, it had amassed great archives of images, both photographic originals and photographic reproductions of images, first produced by means um, of other media. Um, in canonical terms, the Magnum Agency might be representative of the first kind of image repository, while the Bettman Archive is the obvious example of the second kind. And there's a photograph here of Dr. Otto Bettman. Um, the business models of both these internationally networked organisations, incidentally, relied upon two things which both owe their existence to globalisation in its third and fourth phases. First, what Alan Sekula famously called a traffic in photographs, that is to say, an international and specifically transatlantic um, trade in photographic images as illustrations for use in the advertising and uh, publishing industries. And second, copyright legislation that was partly agreed through international agreements um, and partly enacted in slightly different terms uh, from nation state to nation state. As photographic images became an ever more dominant aspect of visual print culture, including in the layout of daily newspapers, Photographs also functioned as what I would call early boundary objects between print and digital. And I'm thinking specifically of so-called wire photos, which were transmitted over telephone lines and could thus be seen across the globe, uh, sent across the globe in a matter of minutes. And now while these, this technology tended to be reserved for specially urgent and or newsworthy images, it definitely primed newsrooms as well as newspaper readers for a time when image transmission would be truly instantaneous. In the private sphere, meanwhile, the many function, social functions of photography had, of course, manifested themselves from the invention of the medium. And I just want to pick out for attention here the figure of the box brownie associated with extremely easily workable camera technology and the outsourcing of all actual image processing to unseen uh, operators, as well as, of course, the notion of the Kodak moment, instilling the idea that certain moments, as opposed to events in everyday life, are worth both recording and sharing visually. Moving rapidly on uh, to the incipient phase, um, the appearance of the Polaroid SX-70 in 1972 ensured that such moments could not only be instantly recorded, but almost as instantly shared, at least among those present. Peter Buse has written so wonderfully about the significance of Polaroid in prepping us for contemporary digital image culture that I'll simply directly, directly to his recent book, The Camera Does the Rest, Have Polaroid Changed Photography, instead of going on about it too much here. But the other aspect, of a um, main aspect of photography in the second phase of digitization is that throughout the 1970s and 1980s, the ever more visually led advertising and publishing markets produce a, a massive expansion of the stock photo market. And this is an international trend, even if the markets tend to display certain national preferences in the selection of stereotypes on offer. And meanwhile, photographic collections and archives are in this period affected as much by the same technological changes as other workplaces. Um, increasingly computerized workflows as the 1980s wear on, the domestication of computer technologies in the office as well as the home, 
and a slightly alarmed sense towards the end of the period that something called digital imaging is very much lodging with intent. And I'm just lowering the tone here as we're getting towards the end of the day. Um, now, as digitization took off with the launch of the World Wide Web in 1994, the stock industry was, together with the so-called uh, wire news agencies, early on the uptake of the new possibilities. Having relied throughout the 80s and early 90s on what Miller describes as encyclopedic and lavishly produced catalogues to entice art directors and designers with their visual wallpaper, in Paul Frosch's delightful phrase, stock photo businesses were keen to try out seemingly less resource-intensive options, such as photo CDs and online services. And here you can see uh, an image taken uh, in through the Wayback Machine of the Internet Archive of uh, the Corbis Images website in 1998, uh, as it looked then, um, and I don't, you probably can't read, but it says, the place for pictures on the internet, TM. So that was how Corbis um, sold itself um, in the, uh, at the turn of the millennium. The takeoff phase of digitization coincided with, and arguably forced through, what might be called the fade-out phase of analog emulsion-based photography. In hindsight, a decision like the one made by news agency Reuters to provide digital-only imagery from the 1998 uh, Football World Cup in France becomes emblematic of this period. A major international actor used a global competition of precisely the kind Robertson considers a hallmark of globalisation to change the technological rules of their own competitive trade in news and sports photographs. As digitisation took off then, the photographic industry was firmly on board, and by the end of this phase, photographic technologies were practically indistinguishable from digital technologies. In the years 2001 to 2010, the struggle for digital hegemony was frequently represented in terms of a technological arms race, with Apple in particular producing an atmosphere of one-upmanship vis-a-vis the likes of Microsoft, uh, Nokia, Samsung, Google, etc. And with the emergence of social media platforms, new arenas for interaction and competition were established. And by the end of this phase, um, certain actors, platforms, and devices had emerged as hegemonic. Uh, these include Apple, uh, with more, sp more specifically their sort of game-changing devices, iPhone and iPad. Uh, Google, on account of its almost complete system of online infrastructure services, from mail via maps to the library. And Facebook, which by 2010 was the default global social media platform. And it is worth reminding ourselves that the original Facebook, from which Mark Zuckerberg produced the earliest version of his social network, was a printed reproduction of student identity photos or mugshots, um, just to kind of you know, underline the deep entanglement, entanglement of photographic technologies and practices um, in what we tend to think of as a highly digital cultural phenomenon. A new term, visual content, is coined in this period uh, to denote the way photographic images from previously distinct sources and genres, so stock, archive, news, art, <coughs> advertising, paparazzi, amateur, family, and so on, all perform the same function in the online visual economy. This apparent levelling of photographic use value among categories of images that were traditionally considered to be of unequal commercial or cultural value nevertheless took place within a system dominated by financially powerful actors. While the online market for photographs in theory was open to all, in practice, the bulk of its trade was controlled by two major visual content providers, Getty Images and Corbis Images, which in turn were founded by two billionaires, the former banker and heir to an oil fortune, Mark Getty, and the Microsoft CEO, Bill Gates, respectively. 
The rivalry between these two companies is in many ways a photographic variation on the struggle for hegemony phase of digitization, exemplifying both the scale of technological investment that was required in the early days of the online trade in photographs and the unevenness of the playing field for those unable to match the financial and thus technological clout of the two giants. This is attested by the sheer number of potential challenges which ended up being acquired by the Getty or Corbis. And, um, of course, eventually Corbis ended up, in a sense, being acquired by Getty um, in the form of uh, Getty getting the licensing rights outside China to Corbis Images when Corbis Images was sold to Visual China Group in 2016. Um, the screenshot here is basically what you, if you try to go into corbis.com now, this, you end up at Getty Images with an explanation that you're now in Getty. Um, so in the, two, um, in the 2010s, Photographic images no longer seem distinguishable from digital, digital images, uh, nor is the notion of a digital challenge to the analogue status quo any longer meaningful. The uncertainty phase of digitization is in many ways better described as the post-digital phase, when the digital has become so ubiquitous as to be unremarkable, except when it's absent. In the words of digital heritage scholar um, Ross Parry, the term post-digital describes a state in which digital is no longer socially emergent and technologically nascent, but rather normative, infusing expectations, experiences and practices in all areas and at all levels of sociocultural activity. And this very talk is the case, as a case in point. Um, its form as well as its content is circumscribed by the patented technologies and legalistic terms and conditions imposed by the feudal laws of mass computation as Bruce Sterling calls Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. The previously mentioned uh, terms of the iTunes U agreement are one aspect governing the immediate archiving of the presentations in oral and visual formats. But just as important is the post-digital environment um, constituted by the Microsoft PowerPoint interface, which in addition to a number of themes and templates derived from photographic imagery, also contains a plug-in photographic archive provided by the reassuringly named Picket free images. And this is what you see here. Now, uh, just a quick word on labeling. This, this kind of thing doesn't even have sort of titles or authors or anything. Well, the yay images that I guess have some sort of right here, but it's really just keywords, tags, is what this kind of image has. And at this point, we're really beyond stock photography, um, we're even beyond visual content. As far as I'm concerned, um, we've entered the realm of post digital post content. And this post-photographic post-image, where is it really located? Where, um, to evoke Derrida one last time, um, where do these archives live? I'm tempted to say uh, 20,000 leagues under the sea. Um, this is a reasonably recent map showing the undersea cable networks that were first established for telegraphic communication in the takeoff phase of globalization, and that with obviously significant expansions uh, now form the backbone of tra data traffic across the globe. As Wolfgang Ernst has noted, the very notion of storage in the digital archive is indistinguishable from that of transmission, since archiving a file in practice means having it constantly sent, received, and resent across a transglobal network of servers. And so with this cartographic pastiche showing the cloud as a network of tangible tubes sitting at the bottom of the sea, rather than as immaterial data floating up in the air, I'll leave you um, to ponder my updated version of Roland Robertson's astute observation that what has come to be called globalization is best understood as indicating the problem of the form in which the world seemingly becomes united, but
but by no means integrated. Thank you. Yeah.